0: In her recent book, How to Live, Judith Valente recalls one time hearing a TED Talk by a philosopher named Steve Cave. He was talking about why we are afraid to die, and Steve said in that TED Talk that sometimes it helps to think of our life as a book. You know, a book is bounded by two covers, and so our lives, too, are bounded by birth and by death. When you read a book, you see that the characters are not afraid of reaching that last chapter. Instead, the characters are focused on the moments that make up the story. And he said that for us as human beings, our lives might be as short as a comic strip or as long as an epic tale, but the only thing that really matters is that it's a good story. During this sermon series called A Life of Meaning, we're going to look at what makes for a truly good life story. In the scripture lesson that we heard this morning from the Gospel of Luke, this man approaches Jesus and asks, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, in God's eyes, what makes for a good story? Jesus replies, well, what do you read in the book, in the scripture? And the man responds, Oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus agrees 100%. You've got this, says Jesus. You know the answer. Just do it. Do that, and you will live. Well, now is the time when we would expect Jesus and the scholar to break out in the happy dance. But instead, the scholar stands there with a stunned look on his face, befuddled, hesitant, lost, unsure. And so instead of high-fiving Jesus and going about, he leans in with another question. We didn't read this part, but you can almost hear him saying, but, 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 but Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, the man knows what to do, but he's reluctant to do it. And for me, that man seems to represent all of us who know that love is the answer, but who sometimes find ourselves apprehensive about loving with our whole selves, heart, mind, strength, with everything we've got. Years ago, my husband Dave and I used to facilitate these marriage enrichment weekends, and Dave used to stand up at the beginning of the retreat and say, Everyone in this room knows more about how to be married than you are currently doing. We know, we know at least some of what it takes for a good marriage, but we're not always motivated to practice or behave that way. And I think it's a similar dialogue that Jesus is having with this man. You know that the right answer is love, says Jesus, but you are apprehensive about loving and I can't help but wonder why. Why is it that we don't love with our whole selves? Mother Teresa is considered by many to have mastered this art of love, but in one of Mother Teresa's books, she describes that moment when a group of volunteers came to serve with her in Calcutta, serving food to the malnourished children, teaching children to read, But before the group departed Calcutta to go back to their regular lives, one of the volunteers raised a hand and asked Mother Teresa, tell us something that will help us make better lives when we go back home. And so Mother Teresa tried to think about how to encourage them in their normal lives, and she decided to say this. Smile at each other. Smile at your wife. Smile at your husband. Smile at your children. Smile at each other. It really doesn't matter who it is. Smile, and it will help you grow in greater love for each other. And then one of the visitors raised a hand and said to Mother Teresa, Are you married? (laughs) And Mother Teresa said, Yes, and I find it difficult sometimes to smile at Jesus. Jesus can be so demanding, and it is at those times that giving a smile is very beautiful. I love Mother Teresa's honesty about how difficult it is for all of us at times to truly love. Now, no one I know disagrees with love, but love can be terribly hard to put into practice. This past week, I've thought a lot about the CEO of Walmart, Doug McMillan, who sent a letter early in the week to the United States Congress, imploring Congress to make our country safer by passing new legislation around the issue of gun safety. In the letter, the CEO outlines the new steps that his company will take to seek to reduce gun violence. Now, I don't know this CEO, but what I picture is him sitting there at his very nice office, writing that letter, knowing that thousands, if not millions, of his own customers will react with anger against the company as a result of this letter. But I also picture the CEO sitting there at his, at his desk, feeling love, for his employees at the Walmart in El Paso, feeling love for his customers, for children, for adults all across this land. Sometimes love involves taking a risk. Now, most of us here in the sanctuary today do not hold a position of influence like the CEO of our nation's largest retailer. But we, too, must sometimes decide if we will take a risk to do what we believe is the most loving act, even if it jeopardizes our own self-interest, our own profits. Now, sometimes we're reluctant to love because we're just not quite sure how. I think of the main character in the best-selling novel where the crawdads sing, Kaya, is a young woman who has not been loved well herself. She's been abandoned by everyone she has ever loved. Her parents walk out, her brothers and sisters leave her at home alone, forever. Her boyfriend betrays her, and here she is, extremely lonely, living in the outer banks of North Carolina, in the swamps, in a little shack, raising herself, and she desperately wants to love. But she cannot imagine having her heart broken one more time. She cannot fathom how she would muster the courage to trust another human being again. Love is risky. The book How to Live describes this artist named Candy Chang, who goes across the United States, installing various art installations, and then inviting folks who pass by the art to interact with the art. What she'll do is place a bucket of chalk next to what she has painted, and then ask folks who come to see the art or who pass by its way to add their own words. For instance, one time she wrote this great big piece of art and it said, before I die, I want to, and then people picked up chalk and one wrote, Sing in front of millions, another wrote, plant a tree, and one person said, I want to straddle the international dateline, but one person added this, before I die, I want to hold him in my arms one last time. I wonder what each of us would write on that chalkboard, and I also can't help but wonder if the artist would change the question just a wee bit, What if the question was this one, when have you felt most completely exhilarated in all the pages of your life? When have you felt most completely alive and exhilarated? Would it be that day that you held your newborn for the very first time? Would it be that night that you went camping on the spur of the moment with some great friends and you stayed up? talking and laughing around the campfire until 1 a.m., and you knew in the sharing of those stories that you were completely free to be your real self and still be loved? Would it be that Christmas break when your kid came home from college after what had been a very rocky semester and you were able to tousle his hair and smell his unique scent and just be glad he was home? Or would it be that time that you were volunteering with a team, rebuilding homes after the hurricane, and you felt the joy and delight of giving yourself away in love to a family you had never met before? Why is it that we find this deep and abiding joy in loving others, and yet we still hold back, we still feel reluctant at times to throw our whole selves into loving others? Of course we love. We all love some of the best chapters of our lives, some of the best pages of our own story, or those times when we found within our own lives energy rising up because we had taken that risk and dared to love. But other times, in fact too often, we guard a part of ourselves, sealing our hearts off, holding back, not loving with our whole hearts, we choose whom and when to love. And of course, there are those folks who were downright difficult to love. You know them, the classroom bully, the ex-spouse, our political opponent, or your next door neighbor who voted for your political opponent or the person at the office who not so secretly wants to see your job eliminated. Maybe this is why the man in Luke's story asks Jesus that last question, who is this neighbor you want me to love? And then Jesus tells the story about a good Samaritan, which is much like telling a story about a good member of the Taliban. We just wouldn't do it. Today's scripture, like many other places in scripture, combines love of God with love of neighbor. Maybe sometimes the best we can do is just to love God and let God figure out a way to love the neighbor through our lives. And of course, by the time Luke got around to writing down this gospel, everyone already knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the very one who had mastered the art of loving people who were so difficult to love, like the sinner and the tax collector and the corrupt political leaders and the blind and the lame and the poor. And all of them had seen for themselves what happened when Jesus risked his own life for love. They knew that this kind of radical, wholehearted love led Jesus to the cross. In the life of Jesus, we saw what loving with one's whole heart, whole mind, all strength looked like. The novel, Mornings in Jenin, traces the lives of four generations living through the horrors of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in the Middle East. At the beginning of the novel in 1937, two little boys, 12 years old, are playing in the dirt on the streets of the market in Jerusalem. Hassan is Muslim, a Palestinian. Ari is Jewish. His parents have recently fled the horrors of the Holocaust in Germany. These two 12-year-old boys are teaching one another their native languages and learning about one another's religions and foods and customs and clothings. But in 1948, at the moment that Israel is declared a state the friendship between these two men is cut short. Ari grows up and becomes a Jewish scholar. Hassan marries, has three children, and then dies in one of the military conflicts with Israel. But at the end of the novel, in the year 2002, the daughter of the now-deceased Muslim-Palestinian named Hassan travels back to Jerusalem and finds the study of Ari, the Jewish scholar, her father's boyhood friend. And Ari tells Hassan's daughter the story about how her father saved his life. At that moment, East Jerusalem had not yet been conquered. And so Hassan uh, loaded Ari, along with his parents, into a wooden ox cart, covered them over with a blanket, and in the dead of night, wheeled them in that ox cart past the armed soldiers, taking them to a narrow crawl space where they could safely slither over to the side where they were not at risk of being shot, taking them safely home. The elderly Jewish scholar Ari tells the daughter of his Muslim boyhood friend, your father, he lost everything his home, his neighborhood, his family, his homeland. And in the middle of that, he risked his life to save mine. How can we possibly explain that kind of love? After 65 years of war and hardship, Ari still deeply adores his childhood friend, Hassan, and Hassan's children and grandchildren. The deep and abiding affection endured as the bombs fell. How can this be? When we are able to love beyond our own abilities, it almost seems like it is God's love flowing through us. Maybe that's why Jesus tells the one who questions him, do this and you will live. Because when we love with our whole hearts, We experience an exhilarating force of life that feels as if it is the very life of God. And we stop measuring the risk and counting the cost because we are empowered by God's holy presence in the here and in the now. And so what if each of our lives are a book, a story with two covers, birth and death will we let the eternal love of god flow through the pages of our own story